mystery of the Most Holy Trinity. This is Oral Valley Catholic, and this is Father John Arnold. You know, we can't understand completely the Trinity, but stretching to comprehend divine revelation is really part of our salvation. God wants us to understand to the degree that we're capable of understanding divine life. Truthfully, God will always escape us. That's why when we speak of God, we speak analogously. We say God is like something, or we have an example that we say this kind of explains what we believe about the Trinity. But understanding the Trinity ultimately challenges our self-understanding. As you will recall, we are made in God's image and likeness. If you remember last week, I discussed St. Augustine's analogy of the Trinity as lover, beloved, and love. If you don't remember it, I refer you to that podcast. But St. Augustine himself thought that the analogy was somewhat short of the kind of meaningful understanding of the mystery of the Most Holy Trinity, which he really ardently sought in his entire life. But he proposed another analogy that has become even more famous in Lover, Beloved, and Love. And it is seeing the image of the Holy Trinity as part of the image of being a human being. So here's the analogy. St. Augustine reasoned that if each of us is formed in the image and likeness of God, then the Trinity should be present in our conscience way of being. What he proposed was an analogy that compared to the Trinity to our interior conscious life, our memory, our understanding, and our will or capacity for love. So the analogy works like this. When we speak, we first have to remember the words. Then we have to understand their meaning and probably very quickly decide, is this the word I really want to use? And then we have to actively verbalize the words in the act of speaking. We can't speak without remembering, understanding, and pronouncing. These actions are distinct, but form the whole of human conscious interaction with others. St. Augustine proposes that the Father, like our memory, and the Son, like our understanding, and the Holy Spirit, like our will or our capacity for love, are like remembering, understanding, and loving. And that is the image of the Holy Trinity written in us. Like the Trinity, these three human activities have an internal order and are shaped in the act of communicating. But they only exist together. They're part of the very same act. We take our remarkable human capacity for communication for granted, but In an analogous sense, the image of God is present in our desire to communicate. So divine revelation, God communicates himself to us. God remembers all that God is. God's self-understanding is made present in the Son. And the Holy Spirit is God's willing to love. In St. Augustine's prayer life, he sought to understand the Trinity. He didn't seek to understand it like a biologist that might dissect a creature. He tried to see it as a whole, living, 
actuality of God's presence. So God has a, the divine nature, uh, and we can participate that in that in our faith, our hope, and our charity. You know, when we're talking about nature in person, these words that we use, we should understand them a little bit because they have kind of a theological provenance. Nature, when we say the nature of something, we're answering the question of what something is. Something is a deer, something is a human being, something is an angel, something is God. It's the whatness of something. Person is something more than just whatness. Person is always about the who that we're addressing. A rock is not a who. A deer, a dog, is a who in some radically different sense, though not completely disconnected from what it means to be a who in human being. And if we can see the who-ness of, say, a dog that loves us, or a cat that's indifferent to us, then in some sense, we get the distance between us and the who-ness or the person of God. You know, our lives as Christians are just immersed in the most holy trinity because that is the end goal of our life, union with the trinity of God. Our lives as Christians begin when we're baptized in the name of the persons of the most holy trinity. I baptize you in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. When we enter the church and dip our fingers into that holy water font, which is the entrance into the life of the divine trinity through the death of the Son. We remember life and death there together when we make the sign of the cross in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. The trinity permeates our faith life. Our faith is fundamentally about Easter and the resurrection. This is true. But it's the life and the trinity that we're being saved for. It's the end goal of existence. And you can't understand the scriptures, the sacraments, or the goal of the spiritual life without understanding that we are destined to live a, an abundant life in the life of the trinity. But even now, we experience that life, though imperfectly, in our faith, our hope, and our love. This abundant life is what the Lord directs our ultimate attention to. And if you believe the fathers of the church, he always has. You know, during the entire Easter season, I talked about typology and how the identity of Jesus in, as expressed in the New Testament is hidden in the Old Testament. The first story or, that's told for the Feast of the Most Holy Trinity comes to us out of the Torah and it recounts, recounts how Moses went up a mountain in Sinai to replace the tablets of the law that he had destroyed. Remember, uh, he comes down the mountain, Aaron and the uh, Israelites are rocking out as they, as they dance before a golden calf, 
And Moses says, I can't leave you people alone for 30 seconds. And he throws down the Ten Commandments and breaks them. Well, he's got to go back up and get them replaced. And so here's what the story said. So Moses cut two tables of stone like the first, and he rose early in the morning and went up on Mount Sinai. And as the Lord had commanded him, and he took in his hand two tables of stone, and the Lord descended in the cloud and stood with them there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. Cloud, stood with them there, proclaimed the name of the Lord. So the English word Lord is always in caps because it's how we translate the Hebrew tetragrammaton, which is Y-H-W-H. We could say Yahweh, but these four holy letters are words, uh, are, is a name that the Jewish people won't pronounce. So they'll sometimes say Hashem. Hashem literally means the name, which refers to this tetragrammaton, these four letters. But they'll avoid pronouncing the name. We now substitute, I think out of sensitivity for the Jewish people, the word Lord. Because Lord means God. So here's continuing on with Exodus chapter 34, which is our first reading. So the Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. And Moses made haste to bow his head toward the earth and worshiped. And he said, If now I have found favor in thy sight, O Lord, let the Lord, I pray thee, go in the midst of us, although it is a stiff-necked people, and pardon our iniquity and our sin, and take us for thy inheritance. So consider the imagery. The Lord descended in the cloud. Think of the experience of the Holy Spirit that we talked about last week during Pentecost coming down in tongues of fire because God comes down in smoke and fire. The Lord then stood with Moses as Christ stood with us. The Lord is the principal title for Jesus, the Son, used by his disciples in the New Testament. In the ancient Christian tradition, St. Justin and St. Martyr, St. Justin the Martyr, whose feast we just had, and St. Irenaeus, say that appearances of God, like say the three angels who come to Abraham in Genesis chapter 18 and 19 to talk about the destruction of Sodom, then Gomorrah, well, that is again a typology of the mystery of the Trinity in the Old Testament. The church fathers as to the story of Moses and the cloud and standing there and passing by, those different elements of this story said that uh, that it was the Son coming to humanity in a way that prefigured the incarnation. And so the Son is there as he stands with um, Moses. And the Spirit is there present in the cloud, just like he is present in the temple in the Shekinah, the cloud of glory, or present at uh, Pentecost, or present when, um, when the Lord, the Holy Spirit, overshadows Mary at the Annunciation. And then the Father is present as he passes before Moses. So Moses can remember only see his backside, and that's St. Augustine's point, that God is memory. God is where we come from. But the Catechism of the Catholic Church says this is the typology of the Old Testament that prefigures the revelation of the interior life of God 
that we have in the New Testament. And I refer you to paragraph 707 of the Catechism of the Catholic Church, which says, theophanies, a theophany is a manifestation of God, a symphony is, you know, a phono sound, all this harmonious sound. But theophanies, sound, phone, the, is God's sound, this, this roar. Theophanies light up the way of the promise from the patriarchs to Moses and from Joshua to the visions that inaugurated the missions of the great prophets. Remember, the prophets had these visions of God too, which are very complicated. Christian tradition has always recognized that God's word allowed himself to be seen and heard in these theophanies, in which the cloud of the Holy Spirit both revealed him and concealed him in its shadow. It's like why St. Paul says, we see now as through a glass and darkly. We see some things, but without complete understanding. Could we even in principle understand what the spiritual life is uh, like other than the experience we have of faith, hope, and love, and prayer, and miracles? The theophany recounted in this first reading from Exodus for the Feast of the Most Holy Trinity reflects the tradition of seeing theophanies as a sign of the mystery of the Trinity that will be revealed in the New Testament. So how about the New Testament? So let's turn to St. Paul, which is the second reading in uh, 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 3. St. Paul in the second reading from 2 Corinthians says, Finally, brethren, farewell. Mend your ways, heed my appeal, agree with one another, live in peace, and the God of love and peace will be with you. Greet one another with holy kiss. All the saints greet you. So Paul's a monotheist. He would have prayed, Shema Israel, Adonai Eloheinu, Adonai Echad. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. Hopefully I didn't screw that up too badly for our Jewish friends. But that's right out of Deuteronomy chapter 6. But here's what Paul, the monotheist, says in the very next verse in 2 Corinthians. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. So Paul is giving an explicitly Trinitarian farewell in 2 Corinthians. And if you remember, it's still the greeting we use to begin Mass sometimes. So in the Gospel of John, uh, John's gospel is very much about the Trinity. And so here's what it said today. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God sent the son into the world, not to condemn the world, but that the world might be saved through him. He who believes in him is not condemned. He who does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. Um, belief, connection with ultimately what is true to be a human being. How can we come to life if we're disconnected from who we really are meant to be? You know, in Greek, it literally says, God gave his only begotten Son so that whoever believes in him might not perish. One reason that's important is because it sets Jesus out as the unique Son of God. You know, there are parts of scriptures, Romans chapter 8, Galatians chapter 3, that says that we are sons of God. Jesus even quotes to that from the Old Testament. But not the only begotten Son of God. That gives a uniqueness to Jesus 
that we cannot say about ourselves. Jesus is God's son in a completely unique and intimate way. And so we say in the Nicene Creed, light from light, true God from true God. I hope you still remember that. And you won't forget what it really means. See, Jesus is the uncreated son of God. Angels and human beings have a beginning, but Jesus has no beginning as the eternal son of God. He existed before he took form, took on, became a human being, not just taking on a human body, but actually assuming the nature of human beings in the womb of the Virgin Mary. That's why the incarnation is such a magnificent mystery. Jesus is uncreated and is always the Son of the Father. No other person can claim that. The Greek word that St. John uses is monogenes. Mono means only. And it's really the root of the word uh, monk. And genes, like in Genesis, comes from the word geneo, meaning to bear or to beget. Jesus existed before he became a man. We didn't pre-exist our conception in our mother's womb. No, regardless of what your kindergarten teacher told you, you weren't floating around in heaven till God found a body for you. You did not exist. You know, I had this religion teacher whose little girl asked about this. Mom, where was I before I was in your tummy? And she said, well, honey, you didn't exist. What do you mean I didn't exist, she says. And she became terrified that there was a time that she wasn't. And so mom said, well, you're an angel in heaven because that's stories that are told to children. For adults, the reality is we're created from nothing because we are not things, we are persons and persons are never things. And God creates us as a person. We're something far more than merely the material reality that is our body. You know, the same thing, the angels, when they were created by God at the beginning of time, they were created out of nothing. They, Jesus exists as God exists. Angels, human beings, we have a beginning, but Jesus has no beginning and he has no end. That's important because it helps us to understand that from all eternity, there, eternity, there is more than one person in the one God. As Christians, we need to attempt to grasp the basic meaning of the Most Holy Trinity so that we can profess our faith with understanding. You know, God revealed this to us because it has saving importance. There is a reason why we should try to expand our minds to come to terms with God because this is necessary information to understand how God interacts in our life. You know, at Every Sunday Mass, we say the Nicene Creed. Even in Lent and uh, Advent, we say the Nicene Creed. We don't say the Gloria, but we say the Nicene Creed. Why? Because if someone asks you, what do Catholics believe? You just turn to them and you say, we believe in one God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. And you go on from there. And the wise listener knows I just said the Apostles' Creed, not the Nicene Creed. But the Nicene Creed is the fullest expression of the Creed. So we worship Jesus because he is divine, and we affirm that in the Nicene Creed, right along with affirming the divinity of the Father and the Holy Spirit. You know, we venerate the Blessed Virgin Mary. We venerate saints. 
but the difference between veneration and worship is sacrifice. So that when we join in the sacrifice of the Son at the altar, that is only offered to God the Father. That's who Jesus offered it to. That's what makes for worship. The problem with uh, Protestants, these non-Catholic Christians, since they don't have a priesthood, they've really lost the distinction of sacrifice and veneration, worship and veneration. Um, it's really important to have the faith in its integrity. Otherwise, your worship will always be somewhat distorted. So when we come to worship God on Sunday, it really is more than veneration. And the Nicene Creed is a part of that act of worship when we affirm that Jesus Christ is consubstantial with the Father. Consubstantial, what does it mean? It means that Jesus is of the same substance or nature as the Father. And remember, nature is the whatness of something. So God, whatever God is, God is spirit, that is what Jesus is. He has that same divine nature. The incarnation is that he assumes our human nature. So that these, these two natures in Christ, divine and human, how he becomes the bridge between uh, us in our material world and the spiritual world that we are made for with life and the Trinity. Uh, human nature is a different nature. Human nature is created out of nothing. We're dust. It's God who breathes his spirit into us. That's the importance of the Pentecost, um, that God gives us his spirit in the sacraments. Uh, in the creed, the Father is the Lord, the Son is the Lord, and the Holy Spirit is the Lord. That's the word that we use for this Old Testament tetragrammaton, Y-H-W-H, Yahweh. In the creed, the Father is the Lord, the Son, and the Lord. And that's the essence of the mystery of the Trinity, the Lordship of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And that's why we profess the Trinity on Sundays in the Nicene Creed. Heaven, friends, is our ultimate and blessed end. It's the entry of just us, dust, into eternal life. Uh, the wow of the Christian message. The Trinity is our destiny, the ultimate reason the world is made. Uh, Christianity isn't fundamentally about morality. It's not fundamentally about ideas. It's about the reality of God in us and that relationship described and brought to its perfection through scripture and sacraments and our moral life. But it's the end goal that defines what Christianity is. We partake even now in that divine life through the theological virtues of faith, hope, and charity. I want to take a moment and maybe sum all this up in a prayer that St. Augustine used to say. So I want to talk about St. Augustine's prayer. Um, you know, there's a difference between philosophy and theology. Philosophy is a human enterprise. The Greeks did it and they didn't believe in God like we believe in God. But they're some of the greatest philosophers of all time. It's a completely rational enterprise. But theology is something different. Theology takes some of the methods and techniques of philosophy, but it's prayerfully directed to an engagement with the mystery of God and how it is that we should understand that mystery as time unfolds around us. But you know, when I was in the seminary, and I started in 94, I've just been ordained 22 years. 
when I was in the seminary, there was this debate that was in all the journals. I used to sit in the library and love to read all this stuff, mostly ignoring the stuff my professors told me to read. But anyway, this stuff was interesting. Um, and so uh, the argument was whether or not a theologian had to pray or whether or not you could just do theology as an intellectual exercise using the techniques of philosophy. Because like I say, they overlap. You know, to me, that's ridiculous. For St. Augustine, it would have been absurd. I think the right answer is that theological engagement with God, even by a trained theologian, or even in your own creative understanding of God, which is the act of theology, as you try to come to a personal understanding in union with the church of God's presence and God's activity. Uh, fundamentally, it's more than merely an intellectual enterprise. I believe I am on solid ground when I tell you that you have to pray to really enter into divine life with God. Pray to understand your faith. St. Therese of Lisieux, the great doctor of the church, said meditation, contemplation, it's just thinking about God. It's doing theology in a prayerful way. So I know St. Augustine and the fathers of the church would tell us, pray, pray, pray. Religion is more than just information. So here's St. Augustine's prayer. O Lord my God, my one hope, listen to me lest out of weariness I should stop wanting to seek you. But let me seek your face always and with ardor. Do yourself give me the strength to seek, having caused yourself to be found, and having given me hope of finding you more and more. Let me remember you. Let me understand you. Let me love you. Increase these things in me until you refashion me entirely. Did you pick up that prayer? It's a Trinitarian prayer. Let me remember, understand, and love you. It's praying that the life of the Trinity be present in Augustine and in each of us. So there's a good prayer. You can pick it up on my, on my blog, uh, show notes, the homily notes there on, my, on the website. But as always, I just thank you for listening. I hope that God makes himself present in each one of you. This has been Oro Valley Catholic, and I'm Father John Arnold.